After the fireworks, liberal religion, show me your papers. Life will break your heart. It will boggle your mind. It will knock the breath out of you. And it will fuel your passion, fire your creativity, summons your spirit, and life will stir your soul. And it can do all of this in the course of a day. This is life here and now. It's no argument. And to quote what the poet said earlier, the thing is to love life. The thing is to acknowledge and value its preciousness, hurts and all. To love it even when you don't particularly like living it. And to develop from this love the courage to live from a place of compassion. This commitment to life, to cultivate the love of it, to understand that God or the divine or the mystery is in the simple and everyday as well as the profound and the ineffable. And to get it that we are called to put our compassion in action because this is what drives, this is what undergirds our social action towards social justice. Justice is what love or compassion looks like in public. Unitarian Universalism is a covenantal faith, not creedal. What this means is that the important thing is the quality of relationships rather than our conformity to beliefs. Social justice and social witness are in integral parts of our religious traditions. Certainly not the only part, but an important part. My sermon title has two parts, and they may seem uh, disparate, but I will hope to make a connection and between them. Anyway, as it came to me, this is how it came. We just celebrated the 4th of July. Independence Day, a day of food, family, friends, fireworks. It's a recognition of America's or the colonies declaring their independence from England to enjoy freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear and tyranny, financial freedom. And so now, after the parades, after the fireworks, is a time to reflect on how the fourth came to be in the first place. We are a nation of immigrants. The Declaration of Independence was declared in large part because King George III was restricting immigration to the colonies. The king was losing revenue from the purchase of goods and taxes as the colonies became more self-sufficient. Essentially, he restricted immigration for economic reasons. Some things don't change much in 236 years. My purpose here is not to talk about immigration other than what to say, to say something that was riveting to me uh, from the recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, SB 1070, which Arizona's immigration law. And while the court struck down most of the, the law, it left intact Section 2, the so-called show-me-your-papers provision, 
which says essentially that police have the right, but in fact a requirement, to determine the immigration status of anyone they stop, anyone encountered in any stop, detention, or arrest. I don't know about you, but this is chilling to me. When I hear the phrase, show me your papers, I don't see how it can do anything other than create a climate of fear. It seems odious. Imagine, if you would, the quote from Martin Niemöller. And he was referring to Nazi Germany, and in fact, he ended up doing uh, several years. He was in a concentration camp for several years. But it's a quote that I'm sure you all are familiar with, but let me just tell it uh, briefly. He said, first they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And he goes on, he says, they came for the trade unionists, they came for the communists, they came for the Jews. I did not speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So I imagined to fit in the phrase like this. First they demanded of the Hispanic, show me your papers. I did not speak out. because I'm not Hispanic. Then they demanded of the Muslim, show me your papers. I did not speak out because I'm not Muslim. Then they demanded of the Native American, show me your papers. I did not speak out because I'm not Native American. Then they demanded my papers, and there was no one left free to speak for me. Show me your papers, I think is code for saying, show me you belong. And belonging matters. Psychologically, it's fundamental to health, to happiness. It counteracts isolation and loneliness. We need to belong. It gives the feeling that there are people, and maybe even abundance of people, who are all in this together. And this brings me to the second part of the the sermon title, which is uh, Liberal Religion, Show Me Your Papers. It seems to me there's a challenge to liberal religion, such as Unitarian Universalism, because if you Google liberal religion, it comes up Unitarian Universalism. which is issued by fundamentalists, conservatives, pundits, politicians. Something like, show us your papers, show us you belong, prove that you are bona fide, that you're relevant, authentic, worthy, that you have a standing and you have a voice. I'm not here to offer a lame rationale for our existence or worth. This is not a liberal religion apologetic. Advocating, witnessing, working for justice in our world and promoting the individual's dignity of life is the principal way that we express our faith. In fact, as we say, service is our prayer. Liberal religion goes back a long, long way, over two and a half centuries. We come from a long line of social activists, justice seekers, radicals, heretics, dissenters, of abolitionists, pacifists, 
suffragettes. We come from champions for civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, elder rights, LGBT rights, and we've taken on economic injustice, prison reform, environmental concerns, no small feat. There is nothing inconsequential about our history with uh, social activism. We hold up as core tenets freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, integrity of doubt, commitment to questioning, dedication to prophetic justice, meaning that we believe we are called to practice justice, kindness, care to those who are oppressed or vulnerable, and that we are called to be guardians of freedom of thought and discussion. Now, the way this plays out in real time may not be pretty. Unitarians are known for having a lot of different committees, um, and we don't always agree on what constitutes a worthy cause, or even if it's a worthy cause and how we're going to express our support or our opposition. And this is where congregational, congregational polity comes into play, where the democratic, the democratic process comes into play. Now, the democratic process can be long, tedious, and to quote Hank Storr, a longtime member, not particularly energy efficient. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but part of the work of the church is to grapple with these questions of deciding how, whom, uh, what we stand with or we stand against. So these are issues at the congregational level, such things as immigration reform, death penalty reform, prison reform. They're complex. This is for another day, another sermon. I will say that at the General Assembly this year, it was uh, held in Phoenix, and it was no accident that it was held in Phoenix. Um, and one of the, the main talks was about immigration. But my intention here today is focusing more on everyday justice, routine, unexceptional, quotidian justice, seeking opportunity to create justice, to borrow and paraphrase. Uh, maybe it would be like practicing random acts of justice. It involves using whatever advantage or privilege I have to stand up and to take small actions wherever I see the need. Everyday justice means standing up for names, not for numbers. It means doing the next right thing. It includes a myriad of actions from writing or calling your congressman, writing letters to the editor, sitting in court hearings, uh, bearing witness to uh, the, the process, uh, even recycling, these are all about justice and taking care of the interdependent web. And I'm also here to say we don't need to wait for justice, the type with the capital J, to roll down upon us like water, to quote Martin Luther King, but to do just things as I notice unjust things probably not unlike paying it forward. Never underestimate the force of daily, mundane, 
even pedestrian acts of bringing love and compassion to bear on situations because this is how we create a more just world. I'm talking about intentionally developing a practice or a discipline of justice. A quote from Martin Luther King illustrates eloquently, I think, the interplay of love, power, and justice. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I think one way or one concept to guide developing a practice of justice, to hit the refresh button to, to, to have our eyes clear about it, is the, the concept of tikkum olam, which means repairing the world. And it comes from a story uh, found in the uh, Kabbalah, which are the writings of medieval Jewish mystics. And it goes something like this, that God got bored, so he created ten crystal spheres to hold the manifestation of himself. So essentially, God poured God's essence into these ten globes to create the world. Something went awry, The spheres shattered into gazillions of tiny pieces, creating a universe a tad more chaotic than planned. But here's the deal. Every living thing has a tiny shard or piece of one of these uh, spheres that God created. We all have a piece of God inside. And our task is to recognize this shard in myself and in others. So we practice tikkun we practice repairing the world, when we look for, find, and honor this shard, this piece of God in each of us. We practice tikkun when we take actions that affirm the inherent worth and dignity of all and the interdependent web of life. I think one of the most important contributions of liberal religions is that it's always emphasized ethics over doctrine. There's a commitment or an ethic of hope. It involves a deeper form of spirituality, the ability to persevere, to continue to struggle for justice, even when all seems hopeless, even when you feel like you're bringing a butter knife to a gunfight, There's always hope. Hope has always played a role in liberal religions. Uh, The the idea of universal salvation versus the doctrine of predestination or election. Liberal religions have a deep faith in human and social progress. And it necessitates a long-term view. And like eating a chair, it's that we have to take small, small steps and never give up and understanding that hope comes from acknowledging that justice is small steps and it's always long term. And so we can just remember eating a chair. 
Cynicism is a luxury we cannot afford. Uh, I've heard a couple of, of different projects or, or ways of social activism, social justice, that I think are great examples of this, and it's the, they demonstrate, I think, the willingness to be fierce and steadfast champions uh, and standing firmly on the side of love. One involves a, a liberal relig- a religion uh, group, and the other is not really associated with religion, but I think it does show that we are not alone uh, in opposition to whether it's the religious right or conservatives, whatever, or uh, fundamentalists, that we are in this together. And the first one is, um, and I'll give you just a little bit of background. Uh, when I was riding my bike a few months ago, it was April, and I heard an interview on All Things Considered, and it was with um, um, a woman named Sister Simone Campbell, who's a lawyer, lobbyist, nun, and who has worked tirelessly with the poor. And she's part of the largest association of U.S. nuns, which is the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. And it's a group that has angered the Vatican by, quote, allowing radical feminist themes to permeate its meetings. This has led the Vatican to appointing three bishops to supervise the women. And this is what Simone Campbell said. The idea that women religious in the United States is not being faithful to the gospel is just shocking. The fact is our lives are committed through these vows to living the gospel, and while we have amazing richness in the spiritual life, we give up a lot to do this. And it's not about the giving up, but it's about the fidelity to the call to be faithful to the gospel and having that so unseen and to have this edict never mention the gospel, never mention the responsibility to be God's arms and hands with people who are poor and suffering, the people at the fringes, people who suffer injustice, to have that not at all seen is extremely painful. She added, I don't know what's on the Vatican's mind, but I think it has to do with leadership doesn't know how to deal with strong women. And so there are ways to try to shape us into whatever thing they think we should be. And she, she talked about the difference between it was a struggle of culture and that in the Vatican they were used to a monarchy and the nuns in the United States are living in a democracy. When you don't work every day with people who live at the margins of society, it's so much easier to make easy statements about who's right and who's wrong. Life is way more complicated in our society, and it's probably easier 8,000 miles away in Rome to make these decisions. But she was still hopeful that they could, they could come to some understanding. She said, this won't tear us apart. It makes us mad. It makes us upset. It may make us wonder about what, where on God's green earth all this is going and why in God's green earth might this be necessary but we remain faithful. That was in April. Less than two months later, Sister Campbell and eight other nuns mobilized and organized the Nuns on the Bus Tour. And this was uh, 
several buses that took groups of nuns, sisters, to nine, uh, to congressional districts in nine states to argue against the proposed cuts in social spending. She said, it's an immoral budget in what it does to people who struggle. The, uh, the nuns on the bus tour ran from uh, June 18th and just ended in July, on July 2nd. She said of the bishops in the Vatican, we're both annoying to each other, but we can lift up another voice. The second project was, again, I was on my bike and I was uh, riding, this was just this past Friday, and I was listening to um, Cindy Lauper being interviewed on NPR. And she's working uh, on a project called 40 to Nothing. And what this is about is there are 1.6 million homeless youth in our country. 40% of those, or 640,000, identify as LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered. And their story is they are typically forced out of their homes due to their, this identity. And so this is a, a, a project. The 40 to Nothing is to educate, advocate, set up new programs uh, with the idea of moving these individuals, uh, getting these children, getting these kids off the street. She said, I want them to know we're working on it. There is a future. It takes time. Evolution is step by step, but it will come kind of like eating a chair. She says to us, the public, they need us to stand with them until they can stand on their own. When asked why she was doing it, she said, kids shouldn't be thrown away. And she also said that she had been told, it, it, it had come to her that uh, there were some programs out there, but they needed advocates. So she said, I have a big mouth, I can advocate. She was asked if she thought there'd be backlash with her fans, and she said, I've been around a long time, I don't think there will be, but if there is, I'm gonna advocate my ass off for these kids. And I just liked that, I thought that was great. These, I think, are meaningful actions. They encourage and inspire us to live up to our ideals, to be congruent with our principles. They inspire us to stand smack dab on the side of love and justice. Social activism for justice is inherently spiritual. I think there's a spiritual transformation through the power of meaningful action. So liberal religion and its proponents are relevant, we are bona fide. We will survive through united spirit and a sense of community. In the end, we are all made whole by our connections with each other. We applaud, we affirm the likes of Sister Campbell, of Cindy Lauper, and we understand that it's in the power and grace of ordinary people that we are raised up, that we are helped out, and we're made whole by the fellowship of people no better or worse off than we are. 
We are stronger the wider our arms are open. Our dreams and ideals are more powerful when they are shared by others. We are the ones who can create the climate for justice. It depends on us. It's up to us. We can take small steps that nudge the arc of the moral universe in the direction of justice. We're relatively small in size, but not in spirit. We'll not be judged by how many we are, but rather by the values we represent. And we don't have to prove our bona fides by rants, cants, tirades, being strident, oppositional, obstreperous, vituperous. We don't have to be, that was, I'd had to practice that one a little bit. We don't have to be the loudest voice in the room. We can have differing opinions and still respectfully, uh, treat each other respectfully and live out our first principle of affirming the worth and dignity of every person. We can remember that civility is not a sign of weakness. So, life will break your heart from time to time, but with our connections and our everyday acts of courage, kindness, and love, the spirit soars and the soul endures. Thank you.